Church, my title for you today is simply, Your Words Matter. Your Words Matter. By way of introduction, let me say this. Our words are losing their meaning. And what's more, they're losing their meaning because there's a group of people who are convinced that words themselves can be hurtful to people's feelings. Now, I'm not talking about hurtful, derogatory words. I'm not talking about insults against someone's ethnicity or culture or the color of their skin. Obviously, wrong is wrong is wrong. But no, I'm talking about words that are much, much, much more common. Words like him or her or woman or man. And this is to say nothing of other words that are concocted to deflect from real issues. For example, although the Bible is explicit about man being dead in trespasses and sins and in no shape or form being alive unless God the Holy Spirit makes them alive and connects them to God, amen? There's a whole section of people around the world who believe in spirituality. When the Bible emphatically says spirituality is an absolute impossibility if there is an absence of God the Holy Spirit. Or as another example, think of the so-called scientific and feminist movements within the women and our country at large when they label women as pregnant rather than with child. With child being a group of inconvenient words that most certainly goes against another word that is so important to them, abortion. So that even that word, abortion, has been replaced by another set of words, namely women's reproductive health. You see how quickly words are made devoid of meaning, manipulated and turned so that the very thing that they want accomplished can be accomplished under a guise of a different definition or a different set of words. Sounds a lot more palatable when someone stands up and talks about women's reproductive rights or a person's right to choose or someone should be happy with whatever life they choose to live. It sounds very reasonable until you pull the layers back and find out what they actually mean by these collection of words. And quickly you can see how words have altered how people think about a subject by degrees. It starts here, and it continues to adjust more and more and more so that what we're looking at today was unthinkable 12 years ago, and what was happening 12 years ago was unthinkable 30 years ago, and so on and so forth. The drift might feel subtle, but eventually the current takes us much farther than we ever anticipated. Church, Your words matter. Let me say this again. Your words 
matter. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, Jesus says, Do not take an oath at all either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, because you can't make one hair white or black. But they do have little boxes. They're like $9.99. You do bylage or highlights. Anyway, let, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. His half-brother, that's Jesus' half-brother, the Apostle James, he has his own book. It's called the Book of James. And in his book, we see in the wording of James the fact that he sat at the foot of Jesus there and learned some lessons from his half-brother. Listen to what he says in chapter 5, verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. That's almost explicitly what Jesus said, isn't it? And we see there in concert a teaching, and that teaching says that our yes should have value, and our no should have value. If you've ever sat in a session with me or you've sat under my teaching for any amount of time, you may hear in my language what is being taught in this text, namely, that you should have boundaries in your life. That when someone asks you a question or makes a request of you and you say yes, you are saying, I can and I will handle this for you. But if you say no, it means I cannot. And I will not. And furthermore, I will not be manipulated with your guilt trip. And I will not be manipulated by your crying. Because I have boundaries. I have assessed priorities in my life. And therefore, Jesus says, my yes is yes. And my no is what? No. Furthermore, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is engaged in a lesson with a group of people, and he drops this lesson on them. I think this is important. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, because the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. He calls them a family of snakes. How can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Church, your words matter. Your words matter. 
and I hope that you get the point here, the words that you and I speak, the words that we speak, amen, the words that we speak are a direct reflection of the content in our hearts. I'm not, this is not Jesus saying it's a perfect tree. So I don't want you to sit there under the weight of guilt and shame and say, I've said some horrible things in my life. I, and the reality of the matter is, is Jesus is saying in general, here's the truth of the matter. You ought to be able to know about someone by how they speak. And perhaps what's more, how they don't speak. You get me? And especially as people who are followers of Christ, we never find Jesus in a compromised situation because he said something he shouldn't have said. Or he didn't say something that he should have said. The reality of the matter is, church, our words matter. And by way of that lengthy introduction, I'd like for you to follow me back to Deuteronomy chapter 5 and look at verses 1 through 11 as we examine this third commandment today, namely, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Two things I want to share with you today. First, I want you to remember who he is. I want you to remember who he is. Look again at your text, verse 11, Deuteronomy chapter 5. You can read it with your eyes as I read aloud. It says, you shall not take the name of the Lord, all capitals, capital L-O-R-N-D, the Lord your God in vain, because that Lord will not hold him guiltless who uses his name in vain. Remember who he is. Like many of the commandments, the first being an example, the law is spoken with a reminder of who God is. In other words, the law itself is potent. The law itself is important because of the author of the law. And, 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 and perhaps to press it a bit further, the content of the law is what it is because the character of the Lord is what it is. We don't have a God who has passed down to us a law that we look at and admire, but is a complete fabrication and distinction from the Lord himself. No, we receive a law that gives to us instructions about morality and ethics, righteousness and godliness, not because it is different from him, but because it is a reflection of him. It's only because the God who gave the law is a God who is. He's the God who has redeemed his people. He's a God who has saved his people. He's a God who's provided for his people. He's a God who's promised a future to his people. But with that grace, amen if you're listening, with that grace comes a very reasonable expectation and responsibility. My kids, my amazing kids who are miles outside my worth and value, have an expectation, not only because they have my name, Myra, but because they have his name. 
And one day, and each and every day, I give an account to God for how I've treated my children, those kids that he has given to me on loan, if you will. He has an expectation of me to love my children in such a way that they know him. I wonder if we're doing that well. You know, Jews raise Jews. Muslims raise Muslims. Hindus raise Hindus. But I think so often I find Christian families and they say this stupid, ignorant, idiotic nonsense about I want them to make their decision and find their way. Why? Why, God, why? Their heart is dead and they're covered in sin. Show them the way. Why would you ever give up, surrender, and forfeit your right as a parent to show your children and demonstrate to your children who God is and why he expects what he does? Church, grace comes first, but it's not, it's not unreasonable to understand that after grace comes responsibility. We have to remember who he is. We have to remember who he is. So in verse 4, the introduction to the Ten Commandments, if you rewind just a bit to verse 4, it reads, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 9, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So this repetition tells us something. He's knowable and he's known. He's knowable and he's known. You say, I hate when you do the redundant thing. I'm going to do it again. He's knowable and he's known. And what I mean by that is God has revealed himself to us, but if you don't know him, it's not his fault. He's revealed himself so that he could be known. And I love what it says in Deuteronomy 30. He says you don't have to go up to heaven to find the word or under the water to find the word because where's the word? It's, it's been revealed to you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. We can know God, church. He's knowable and he's known. He's revealed himself and he's been received. That's why the words start off, I am the Lord your God who brought you. This is verse six. I said verse four. I'm sorry about that. It's verse six. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of uh, uh, the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And verse nine, I am the Lord your God. I'm a jealous God. He's reminding them that he knows that they know. You know how the parent, the parent thing goes. You know when you're when you're young and you're messing around in Publix and aisle three and you're doing and your and your parents give you the look. Like I'm gonna when I take my flip flop off, I'm gonna stand you up straight. It all all it is is a look because in that look it says I am your parent. Don't you dare embarrass me in public. I will correct you. Don't forget about the other day when I corrected you. I will do it and, and, and so on and so forth. All of that. From this look. <laughs> this is what God is saying in his law. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. I know that you know me. 
Stop messing around. Stop messing around. Grace brings responsibility. I want to say it to you like this. It might seem excessive or odd, but here's the truth, church. Relationships come with responsibility. Relationships come with responsibility. In fact, I might even go a bit further and say it like this. The kind of responsibility you have dictates the kind of relationship you have. Now I'm insulting you. Because some of you are looking around, particularly those of you who are under 25 years of age, and you're going, well, I don't have any responsibility. Exactly. If you have no responsibility, you have no relationship. Relationships require responsibility. It's time to buck up and stop talking about what you have and start assessing what you have. Because if you have no work required of you, you have no relationship. I don't care what you say. If your organization, if your business, if your family, if your friendships, if your marriage, if your children, if all of these things can get on fine in your absence, you have no responsibility. If God removes you from an equation, for whatever reason, people ought to say, I miss him. I miss her. Because responsibilities show the kind of relationship that we have. We should have an expectation of relationships that have responsibility. Why do we have a light show going on today? I mean, you know how like temperamental I am. Like, like my eyes gonna start twitching any second. Probably gonna break out in eczema. I mean, I this I've been I have done so well. Like for five minutes, it's been happening. I haven't said a word. But there's a there's an end to this for me. You know, God's working on me too, people. I'm only preaching to this side of the church for the rest of the day. <laughs> I'm not having it. Just kidding. Let me say it like this. He's our God. Henry, don't worry about it. I'm just teasing. Sit down and enjoy yourself. I'm serious. Okay. All right. All right. He's such a show off. He's our God. He's a covenant-keeping God. He's a miracle-working God. He's an awesome God. We should respect his name by speaking in such a way that demonstrates we acknowledge this. I have some responsibility in my relationship to God. Are you aware and awake? Are you cognizant? and thoughtful of the fact 
that you've got some responsibility in your relationship with God. The truth is, church, when we think of it this way, we can see that I think it means a few things. First, we should respect his name in worship. We talk about this commandment, namely, you shall not use my name in vain, says the Lord. I think it means a few things. First of all, we should respect his name in worship. When we worship, church, it's God first all the time. It's God first all day long. When we worship as we are today, we are keeping him as the center and circumference. He is the beginning and the end of it all. Many churches get together for politics and current events, for motivational talks. They get together merely as a church in name alone because the reality of the matter is they are not a biblical church at all whatsoever. But First Baptist Church of Coleridge is not one of those places. And the reason is not one of those places, not because I say so, per se, but because we have a covenant, you and I, and that covenant says we will always and forever put God first. When we worship, we honor his name. Secondly, we should, we should respect his name, excuse me, in daily life, not only in worship, but in daily life. As we go about our day, are we honoring God with the company that we keep? Are we honoring God with our influence? Are we honoring God with our evangelistic and apologetic opportunities? If someone is struggling in their life, do we say, man, let me tell you what God has done in my life. Can I pray for you? Are we respecting his name in our daily life? Thirdly and finally, we should respect his name in our thoughts and faith. In our thoughts and faith. There's a beautiful psalm, and it says, examine the thoughts of my heart to see if they honor you. That's a dangerous prayer to pray, huh? Lord, see if there's any way in me that's wanting. In other words, are the thoughts that we think and the faith that we believe, do these things honor God's name? Truly, no one can answer that question except you, amen. No one can answer that question but you. But I hope that you will be courageous enough to be vulnerable for a minute with yourself. Don't tell yourself lies about how amazing you are. Be honest and vulnerable. Take a knee before the cross, as it were, and say, I'm only here because I'm a sinner. Speak to me in truth, God, and reveal in me if there's any way that's lacking in this area. When I come to worship, do I put you first, God, in my daily life? Am I putting you first in my faith and in my thought life? Am I putting you first? Am I honoring your name? Why is this important, church? Because we also need to remember that there are consequences. We need to remember his name first and foremost. But secondly and finally, we need to remember the consequences. Look again at verse 11, if you would, with your eyes. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Why not? For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. I love this verse 
because God uses a double negative here. He could have said it in the affirmative because I will judge you. That would be in the affirmative. But he doesn't speak it in the affirmative. He uses a double negative. I will not hold you guiltless. In other words, in other words, this is serious. In other words, God holds his name in high esteem because God. When God holds his name in high esteem, he's saying, I'm not going to let you just run around and use my name whenever, wherever, however you want. No, because I will not hold you guiltless. In other words, you'll be guilty, and I will judge you accordingly. Now to start, before we get to these consequences, I think it's important for us to acknowledge what the law isn't saying so that we can have some clarity about what it is. First, the law isn't forbidding all swearing or vows. The law isn't forbidding all swearing or vows. In fact, we see a number of places in the Bible where this is, in fact, the case. I'm going to rattle off a couple of scriptures to you and, and read them, and you can listen and make a note. The first is Numbers chapter 30, verses 1 and 2. Numbers chapter 30, verses 1 and 2. Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do, he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4 through 7. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 4 through 7. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, because he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. You see the relationship here, church? Let not your mouth lead you into sin. Your words matter. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake, which we do. You know, well, oh, man. that's not what I meant. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? When dreams increase... And when words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. So we see collectively through the Bible, and in particular, these couple of verses that I've shared with you, Numbers 30 and Ecclesiastes chapter 5, that vows or pledges or oaths are not necessarily wrong. Biblically speaking, what we are supposed to do is, if we make a vow, keep the vow. If we make a pledge, help me out, keep the pledge. This is why Jesus says, don't swear at all. Just, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. So the Bible isn't against making vows. And, and furthermore, we might even say that there are some situations in which, in the Bible, there is swearing. 
You say, you swear to God. Yeah, I swear to God, right here in the Bible. Romans chapter 1, verse 9. In Romans chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says, God is my witness. I, I think the vernacular there would be, I swear to God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5. We never came with words of flattery, as you know, or as with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. I think that's what Paul is saying there when he says God is our witness. He said, I swear to God, that's not the case. God knows the truth. It doesn't matter how you word this concoction. I think what I'm saying is this. We don't see this phrase every other paragraph in the Bible. I'm not overplaying my hand here. What I am saying is I think sometimes we overemphasize propriety when in reality what we should be doing is living lives that are so dedicated to righteousness. When we speak, everyone knows there's not a doubt what we mean and where we stand. So the Bible isn't against all forms of vows or oaths or swearing. I think the Bible is against doing it nonchalantly, when we lack the character to convince people of who we are and what we say, then we've got to fill the world with words and cursing and swearing because everyone around us who's listening knows our word isn't worth anything. Secondly, the law isn't forbidding swearing on the Bible. The, word, uh, the law isn't forbidding swearing on the Bible. For example, in a court of law. This would be the position of, for example, the Jehovah's Witnesses or other smaller groups and factions who will not swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help them God, on the Bible because they believe, according to this law and Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, that all swearing is forbidden and outlawed. Well, I think that's an oversimplification of what is being taught. Now, thirdly, the law isn't forbidding cursing. Now, let me just navigate these waters carefully. I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't speak against cursing. It does. For example, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, Paul says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but only that which is good to edify those who hear you. But there's actually a text in the book of Philippians where New Testament scholars have gone through and done the study, and Paul, in fact, uses an expletive, a word that in ancient Greek was a word that referred to bodily waste. Now, he does not do this constantly, and I'm not recommending that you go share the gospel like this. But what he was saying in this context is, since I have met Christ, everything that I have before has become waste. I count everything as loss since I've met Christ. 
So what I'm saying is, is this law, verse 11, is not necessarily about swearing. When we say swearing, we kind of mean cursing. Someone taking the name of the Lord in vain, like we see on every single show that ever comes across television. But the Bible is against cursing. Because our words should be beautiful. Our words should be productive. When someone hears us speak, they should be impressed with our vocabulary. Sometimes people curse because they've never read a book. The reality of the matter is, Paul says in Colossians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, let your speech be with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you might know how you ought to answer everyone. That sounds like a delicious conversation to me. A conversation with grace seasoned with salt so that you know how to interact with anyone that might ask you a question. I like what Joy Davidman said. Joy Davidman, for those of you who don't know, was C.S. Lewis's wife. She wrote a book on the Ten Commandments called Smoke on the Mountain. And on this commandment, she writes something very interesting. I'm going to share it with you. Joy Davidman says, It is true that we often speak of God too lightly, making an empty noise out of the most real and profound of human experiences, substituting a meaningless verbal habit for a serious concept of the Almighty. Profanity does not insult God. A man cannot insult God. But it does cripple man. Significantly enough, no one swears by God so readily as the professed atheist. <laughs> How good is that? Isn't that true? All these people, they do the same thing with Christmas. They want Christmas break, but they don't believe in Jesus. Why do you want Christmas presents and you don't believe in Jesus? Why do you want a holiday? You don't even believe in Jesus. I think all atheists, all atheists should have that holiday removed immediately. Forthwith, remove the holiday. Every atheist should be forbidden to have the holiday. And then on top of that, every time an atheist swears by God or says, damn, and includes God, I think they should be fined. Because they don't even believe in God. So what does that even mean? By the way, there are things that God damns. This is why it's serious, church. There are things that are damnable in God's sight. So when we casually and flippantly just throw words around like this, it makes the eternal situation look lighter and less serious than it is. But these are the things that the law isn't saying. What I do think it's saying is this. If there is ever an instance in which we invoke the name of God, it must be to his glory. And it must be to the good of all those who are in the hearing of our voice. And may it be far from every single member of the First Baptist Church of Cutler Ridge that if anyone outside these walls is not coming inside these walls, that it would be because of a presentation that we made of God an impression that we made 
of God. I hope no one ever says, I'm not going to that church. Well, there's people that say that. You know, you can't, some people, I don't know. You can't help everybody. But, but I hope that it isn't someone out there with an impression of who God is because one of us dropped the ball. And we did a poor job of representing God, of speaking of God. The reality of the matter is, this should be important to us because the commandment finishes by saying, the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. I don't know what he means by that, and he doesn't go on and describe what kind of discipline or judgment we might invoke by misusing the name of the Lord. But can I just say this? You listening? Say amen. Maybe we should just be careful with our words. I don't know why we have this habit, you and I, of asking God where the line is so we can stand as close as possible to it. If God says, don't use my name in vain, then how about if we just say, okay, if that's the line, I'm going to go that way. If the line is over here, I'm going to go that way. Why don't we just work on beautifying our language, deepening our vocabulary, broadening our knowledge of Scripture? If we do these things, church, then we will never use the name of the Lord our God in vain. To close, let me say this. Let's end where we began. Our words have meaning. And perhaps the most meaningful word is the name and titles by which our God is known. And we should cherish that name and those titles. We should consider them with sobriety, solemnity. If we're praying, if we're teaching, if we're fellowshipping, we should freely and readily use his name with joy. But we should never use his name to add weight and believability to our own words because we lack integrity in the eyes of the people to whom we're speaking. Let's work on our souls. Let's work on our character. Let's abbreviate the amount of words that we say, and let's add to the words that we use, power. <laughs>